It was early 1863, and in the very midst of a civil war that challenged the continued existence of the Union, an event that looked to its future. Indeed, a daunting enterprise, the breaking of ground for the Central Pacific Railroad. This is the story of a great undertaking. This is the story of the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there, to show that history is indeed a story. In Council Bluffs, Iowa, it was hot that day, August 13th, 1859. But the heat did not prohibit the visit of a neighboring politician from Illinois. That Saturday, Abraham Lincoln made a speech at the town's concert hall. In the audience was one 28-year-old railroad engineer by the name of Granville Mellon Dodge. The next day, he joined citizens on the front porch of the Pacific House Hotel, where Lincoln fielded questions. At end of the informal session, Lincoln's host, W.H.M. Pusey, saw Dodge and pointed him out to the man from Springfield. That young man, sir, knows more about railroads than any two men in the country. That snapped Lincoln's head round. He studied Dodge for a moment and then said, let's go meet. They didn't sit long when Lincoln popped the question. What's the best route for a Pacific Railroad to the west? Instantly, Dodge replied, from this town out the Platte Valley. And with that, the seed was planted. Only 30 years earlier, British inventor George Stevenson launched the first locomotive. He called it the Rocket Train, and its first successful run was in 1829. One year later, this country's first locomotive, the best friend of Charleston, made its initial run and the second worldwide. Railroad fever caught on quickly, and American engineers were in the lead of railroad design between 1830 and 1850. During that time, American engineers invented the swiveling truck, which when placed under the front end of a locomotive allowed it to maneuver around curves of almost any radius. Then came equalizing beams or levers, which allowed trains to navigate rough tracks. And then four-wheeled swiveling trucks, one under each end of a car, and now freight or passenger cars could follow a locomotive around the sharpest curves. Yet, another American invention was the switchback, which made possible for locomotives to work their way up and around steep inclines. And by the decade of the 1850s, the development of the locomotive lantern, cow catcher, T-rail, brakes, Improved skill by engineers and American daring made feasible a transcontinental railroad. 
1853, Congress called for a survey of possible routes. Then Secretary of War Jefferson Davis sent out four teams, but he preferred a route at the 32nd parallel, one from New Orleans through southern Texas, across southern New Mexico and Arizona territories, and on to San Diego. It had the fewest mountains and least amount of snow, but no free state politician was about to provide funds for a line that might extend slavery. The man, Dodge, who to Lincoln suggested the 42nd parallel, was a Massachusetts man, the son of a common laborer. By the age of 14, he, Dodge, was involved in railroad work as a surveyor. In 1857, on the basis of his surveys, Council Bluffs, when the government decided to do so, was suggested as the beginning point for the Pacific Railroad. But then came Civil War, and Dodge joined the Army. The transcontinental torch was now carried by Theodore D. Judah, who found the route still debated. It was not simply a free state, slave state issue, for there was division in California. Southern Californians favored Los Angeles or San Diego and showed no interest in aiding Sacramento or San Francisco. Like Dodge, Judah supported the 42nd parallel route despite real challenges. Men would have to build a line nearly 2,000 miles long without steam shovels, pile drivers or power saws, without pipes with running water, without portable houses and hospitals, and with no internal combustion engine trucks to move material. There would be great stretches of desert, plus vast areas without trees for ties or bridges, stones for footing or game for food. And then there were three mountain ranges, the Rockies, the Wasatch, and the Sierra Nevada, where winds could howl. Snow might fall in great quantity. Creeks and rivers cut through thousand-foot and deeper gorges, where summits were granite, and neither man nor animal lived. Over most of that route, no cities were close except Salt Lake. No settlements, no farms, no roundhouses, and no water pumps. The only way to have new track was to bring them in on track already laid. Yet, Theodore D. Judah believed it could be done. With financial backers, the first step came June 28, 1861, when the Central Pacific Railroad of California was incorporated. Its president was Leland Stanford, and Judah was to serve as the line's chief engineer. Now, what was needed was the blessing of Congress, and the House debate over the necessary railroad bill was volatile. Much of the debate centered over how much money and land would go to the corporations building the road and how to ensure the construction of the middle part of the line by companies that would start at either end. Judah gave a little and took a little here and there, but finally, one month after... U.S. Grant's costly victory at Shiloh on May 6, 1862, 
The House passed the Pacific Railroad Bill by a vote of 79 to 49. And of course, thanks to secession and civil war, did so without one Southern vote. The Senate vote was tough, and Stonewall Jackson's Shenandoah campaign didn't help matters. Yet when his Confederate force headed back to Richmond, the Senate passed the bill 35 to 5 on June 20th. Again, not one Southern vote, with the possible exception of Andrew Johnson of Tennessee. Lincoln signed the measure into law July 1st, the same day as the confrontation at Malvern Hill down on the Virginia Peninsula. The bill wasn't perfect and had to be substantially changed some two years later with the creation of the Union Pacific, but Judah's basic outline was embraced. The just-created Union Pacific would build west from the Missouri River. The Central Pacific would build east from Sacramento. The two corporations would receive financial aid in the form of government bonds at $16,000 per mile for flatland, $32,000 for foothills, and $48,000 per mile for mountainous terrain. Though there were many issues to hammer out, the man who made it happen, Theodore Judah, was ecstatic and wired his Sacramento colleagues, We have drawn the elephant. Now let us see if we can harness him. Meanwhile, Dodge was knee-deep in the American Civil War. He was wounded at the Battle of Pea Ridge in Arkansas, and while recuperating in St. Louis, he was visited by officials of the Pacific Railroad who urged him to leave the Army. He replied, I have enlisted for the period of the war. And then, just as Robert E. Lee was about to invade Pennsylvania, Dodge was ordered by Grant to Washington City. The president wanted to talk railroading. Towns 50 miles north and south of Council Bluffs, Iowa, wanted the terminus. Dodge, based upon his personal survey, still believed the Platte River route was commercially, and from an engineering point of view, the best, although he now recommended Omaha as the starting point. And so it would be. Though the Central Pacific had already held a groundbreaking ceremony 11 months earlier, engineer Peter A. Dye organized and staged a grand celebration on the 1st of December, 1863, where citizens of Omaha flocked to the bottomland near the ferry landing at 7th and Davenport Streets. By 1864, Lincoln approved the first 100 miles for the location of permanent track and set the gauge at 4 feet 8 and a half inches, which was standard gauge. Dodge, meanwhile, continued his stellar work with the likes of Grant, Sherman, and Sheridan, all implicitly trusted him and his work. At Atlanta, he was shot in the head and rendered unconscious for two days, but survived. The wounding prompted several to again plead with him to resign. He refused. And yet, to protect their railroad engineer, Grant and the president ordered him to St. Louis, where he became commander of the Department of the Missouri. And all the while, honest men from the Union Pacific and Central Pacific continued to work 
while others used their power and influence to divert routes, sell stock, and sadly fill their own pockets. In fact, some notably, George Francis Train and Thomas Doc Durant used their scheming to create Credit Mobilier, which later became the greatest American financial scandal of the 19th century, and obviously a great embarrassment to President U.S. Grant's administration. The driving force behind the project, Theodore Judah, returned to Sacramento and on August the 22nd, 1862, took out an advertisement asking anyone who knew of a better route than the one selected over the mountains to step forward. No one did. And so, he continued to sell Central Pacific shares and bonds, and in early 1863, the company, despite heavy rain, held a groundbreaking. California Governor Stanford gave what was described as a long and dull speech but included this pledge. There will be no delay, no backing down, no uncertainty in the continued progress. After his speech and an offered prayer, he picked up a shovel and turned the first earth for the road. Yet it was not until a month later, when the ground dried out sufficiently for work to begin laying a grade, though construction did begin on a bridge to span the American River at Sacramento. Driving the Central Pacific's workforce was Charles Crocker, who led by example. Rather than shout, go, boys, he'd holler, come on, boys. And with that, he'd put his 250-pound frame into the task at hand. He had to do it often for base pay, which was $3 a day. And while Crocker pushed and cajoled, Judah was out in front of the graders laying out the exact line through Dutch Flat and over the summit of the Sierra Nevada. Grades laid, men still had to wait for rails, and they did not begin to arrive until fall, and that meant some of the original grading, washed out by heavy rains, had to be redone. Then came personal tragedy. Judah made a trip to New York City with his wife, Anna, for the express purpose of meeting with Cornelius Vanderbilt to hopefully raise funds. But Judah fell sick. Diagnosed yellow fever, he died November the 2nd, 1863. Buried in a quiet cemetery outside Greenfield, Massachusetts, Anna put up a monument that simply included his name, his span of years, and the words... He rests from his labors. Though the man who did so much to get the Central Pacific up and running was gone, his dream lived on. Ironically, the same day Judah and his wife arrived in New York City, Charlie Crocker's men spiked the first rails to their ties. Interestingly, there was no ceremony. Eight days after Judah's death, the locomotive Governor Stanford arrived and made, though a short one, the Central Pacific's first run. That engine cost $13,688 and was 10 feet tall and 50 feet long. When fully loaded with water and wood and connected to a red tender, it all weighed 46 tons and was the biggest man-made thing in California. For this occasion, a 12-pound cannon fired around. 
It wasn't much, but the locomotive went as far as 21st Street, where the tracks ended. The railroad work itself, well, it was backbreaking. Bending, digging, shoveling, throwing up dirt on an embankment, bringing in ballast by the cartload, dumping it, spreading it, then leveling. Laying track came next. Men picked up ties from horse-drawn wagons, dropped them on the grade, and were then lined up. Spacers made sure the rails were four feet, eight and a half inches apart. Spikes were placed, and with heavy sledgehammers, three strikes to a spike were driven in. End of rails were then connected with a fish plate. Every worker exposed, and to repeat, all for three dollars a day, plus board. The farther east they pushed, the challenges became greater. In the 31 miles from Sacramento to Newcastle, California, the grade of the road rose steadily until, after Rockland, it reached 105 feet to the mile, then increased to nearly 116 feet per mile, the steepest allowed by Congress. Bloomer Cut, just beyond Newcastle, took months to complete. It was 63 feet deep and ran 800 feet long. As much as 500 kegs of blasting powder a day were used to loosen the gravel. Picks and shovels were used to fill wheelbarrows, and all that earth was removed one wheelbarrow at a time. By March 19, 1864, the Central Pacific provided an excursion car to the end of the line, which was 22 miles out. Six days later, the locomotive Governor Stanford pulled into Sacramento with a load of granite from the cut 22 miles to the east, and that constituted the Central Pacific's first-ever freight run. As the work continued, one man was hired who proved to be worth every penny he was paid. Like Matthew Brady, Alexander Gardner, and Timothy O'Sullivan back east during the Civil War, so too was Alfred A. Hart, an historian with a camera. Stanford hired him to photograph the construction. His first photograph was the locomotive C.P. Huntington crossing the American River Bridge. To get even this far, there had been enormous cost, but in mid-July, word came in from Washington City that the Central Pacific could begin collecting their government bonds for every 20 miles of track laid and approved by government inspectors. That was the good news. The bad? The cost for building the first 36 miles in 1863 and 1864 was nearly $3 million, or what Judah, while alive, had anticipated spending for the first 50 miles. While the Central Pacific dealt with financial and topographical challenges, the Union Pacific line was laid out. First came the surveyors, and that proved to be quite a task. They sought out ground without ridges, humps, ravines, or watercourses because a 19th century train could not run up or down an incline of much more than 2% or go around a sharp curve. If ravines had to be used, they had to be filled. If hills or ridges could not be avoided, they had to be cut through. And, of course, waterways had to be bridged. 
Some 2,000 miles had to be covered. No helicopters, airplanes, balloons, and no maps. Yet, some 90 to 100 years later, with helicopters, airplanes, and maps, Interstate 80 was laid out on almost exactly the same route as the Transcontinental Railroad. Indeed, if today you travel I-80, you are nearly always in sight of the original tracks. Then, each day, surveyors staked wooden spikes, which conveyed a message to graders who followed. Here is going to be the exact line of route for you to follow. Peter Dye, backed by the findings of his surveying team, suggested a westward route from Omaha that would follow the valley of Lodgepole Creek. It ran out of the Black Hills, then up and over the Black Hills, through Cheyenne Pass, and down to the Laramie Plains. Lincoln approved that route November the 4th, 1864, four days before his re-election. It was Doc Durant who drove hard to get the road laid, and quite frankly, he wasn't liked. Arrogant, full of bluster, quick and often wrong, bossy, showy, and without common sense, he did have one talent, and that was finding the right men to build his Union Pacific. And the one man he wanted most was Granville Mellon Dodge, who consistently refused his offers. In charge of the military department of the Missouri, which comprised all the lands between the Missouri River and the Rocky Mountains, he had his hands full for Sioux, Apache, and Arapaho were terrorizing white settlements, and Grant wanted their activities suppressed. And though he turned down Durant's offers repeatedly, Dodge did aid the Union Pacific when he sent out a general order to all district commanders on the Great Plains. I am coming with two regiments of cavalry to the Platte line and will open and protect it. He planned to remove all trespassers, Native Americans, on land of the Union Pacific Railroad. He mobilized every soldier in the department, and soon the Overland Telegraph notified Washington that telegraphic communication had been resumed from the Missouri River to California. Upon receipt of that work, Grant wired, where is Dodge? And the manager wired back, nobody knows where he is, but everybody knows where he has been. As we noted, after surveying came the graders. Although Chinese coolies come to mind, many Union Pacific graders were young Civil War veterans who, after the war, had little to go back to. They lived in camps and were commanded by a boarding boss. Sometimes there was a camp doctor. Stable bosses assigned men to their jobs. Walking bosses kept the men on task. Irishmen were often employed, and whenever Durant failed to forward their pay, they were prone to strike. All worked with shovels, picks, wheelbarrows, teams, and scrapers. Younger men were the spike drivers, older ones plowed and filled. Men in their late teens or early twenties generally shoveled. Their collective task, lay out a grade for the track, one that was level with only a bit of curve, two feet or more above the ground so it would not flood out. 
To begin the process, all grass and roots had to be removed and tossed aside. Dumping bosses made certain of that. When the grade at the top was wide enough for one or two tracks, 12 feet from shoulder to shoulder, then cross ties were placed and all that was ready for the rails. After an early start each morning, at noon, the walking boss called time, and everything stopped until 1 p.m. when work resumed. If men could not level grades by hand, scrapers drawn by oxen or up to four horses were called in. When rocks were found, hand drills were used, and into the holes they made went black powder. After detonation, cuts were dug out and leveled. And again, to emphasize the task, cuts were done completely by hand. Behind the graders came the track layers. Remember that with each mile east or west, the distance and effort increased to get rail where it was needed. When it was there, track-laying teams numbered about 400. Ties were carried ahead a mile or two from the supply train by horse-drawn wagons and laid by a special team. Rails were brought forward to the very edge. Two would be dropped, positioned, spiked, and riveted, process repeated over and over. While these animals and men labored, Doc Durant labored with funding. He tried subscription, and it failed. He tried public stock subscription, and it too failed. So he borrowed at 19% annum. Part of the money issue was supply. The Great Plains offered little timber for ties, trestles, buildings, and the like. Thin groves of cottonwood could not fill the need, so timber had to be shipped up the Missouri River. And all this meant that as 1865 ended, Union Pacific crews managed to complete only 40 miles of road with all the required sidings, station houses, and water stations. For Durant, that was a real problem as the 1864 Pacific Railroad Act required the Union Pacific to complete the first 100 miles by June 27, 1866. A daunting task. Now, when the government accepted the 40 miles actually completed, the company did receive $640,000 in government bonds. $320,000 per 20 miles, as stipulated by the 1864 bill, and Durant needed every penny of it. And so would those building the Central Pacific, for they would have to cross the principal topographical feature of the Far West, which is one massive granite block, the Sierra Nevada. On its eastern front, they rise from 4,000 feet or more to the north to 7,000 feet or more in the south. The western face is some 50 to 60 miles broad with a gradual rise of 2 to 6 percent. Summits are enveloped in glaciers and run from 6,000 feet in the north to 10,000 feet west of Lake Tahoe in the center. There are 12 peaks over 14,000 feet in the south. In a way, they seem to isolate California from the rest of the country. Too big, too snowy, too steep, too rugged, too extensive, and too formidable. Ask the Donner Party in 1846-47. To get through granite, tunnels were required, 
And then tunneling through granite had no precedent. To even attempt required a lot of money. Then, after successful tunneling, there would be grading, tie, and track laying. And getting iron rail was costly. Rail, all of it from the east, original price and shipping to San Francisco ran $143.67 per ton. Then, there were transfer costs from San Francisco to Sacramento, then up the Sacramento River. Locomotives were also pricey. Two engines cost the Central Pacific $79,752. Then, add thousands of laborers who had to be fed, lodged, and paid. Now, remember, every completed and approved mile meant government bonds, 16000 per mile for the first seven miles. Then, when the Sierra Nevada began, 48000 per mile for the next 24. That money kept the Central Pacific afloat. By June 10, 1865, the Central Pacific's railhead was at Clipper Gap, a lumber settlement 43 miles east of Sacramento and 1,751 feet above sea level. It was then the attack on the mountains began. And to do that, the Central Pacific hired immigrants. Although discriminated at every step by California law, there were some 60,000 Chinese in the state. Whites despised them. Governor Stanford called them the dregs of Asia. And though the Golden State banned any further importation in 1858, still they came. Illegally. Those there were known to work hard, and the Central Pacific needed men. So, by the end of 1865, there were just under 2,000 whites working on the line and 7,000 Chinese. The combined force pushed the railroad east to what was then called Illinois Town, 54 miles from Sacramento. Elevation, 2,242 feet. The Sierra Nevada summit was 50 miles away, and the grade would climb 4,800 more feet to 7,042 feet above sea level. Those 50 miles would be the hardest, toughest, and most expensive. It took a full year to reach Dutch Flat from Illinois Town. Dutch Flat, 67 miles from Sacramento. Contemplated were 15 tunnels, all through granite. Five on the western slope, one at the summit, and nine on the east. The longest would be tunnel number six at the summit, and it would stretch 1,659 feet, 26 feet wide, 20 feet high, and 124 feet below the surface, all again through solid granite. More than 500 kegs of black powder would be consumed each day. In the coming work, there was a one-week period where crews used as much explosives as Lee and McClellan at the Battle of Antietam. Just to get there, hundreds of gullies and ravines had to be filled or bridged. To meet demand, 30 supply vessels were at sea simultaneously. The most feared stretch was the three-mile route along the precipitous gorge of the North Fork of the American River. It was nicknamed Cape Horn. The slope's angle was 75 degrees, 
and the river was 1,200 to 2,200 feet below. No tunneling here. The rails would be laid, literally, on the side of a mountain where no existing trails or even goat paths. Incredibly, with Chinese resourcefulness and daring, they got their work done by spring 1866. That fall, tunneling began. From their base at Illinois Town, later Colfax in honor of Speaker of the House Schuler Colfax, Chinese crews went forward to work in three eight-hour shifts. The terrain meant there was only room for three men gangs. One held a rock drill against the granite, while the other two swung 18-pound sledgehammers. Needless to say, progress was slow and injuries increased. With men working around the clock between 6 to 12 inches, between 24 hours was normal. What was accomplished could never have been done without the Chinese. Whites drank from lakes and streams and therefore suffered dysentery and diarrhea. The Chinese boiled their water for tea. They ate oriental fruits and vegetables, which came dried from San Francisco. They took sponge baths daily, washed their clothes, were clean, healthy. In short, they were ideal laborers. By the end of 1865, the Central Pacific had 54 miles of working track from Sacramento to Colfax. Less than 20 miles had been spiked that very year, but those few miles cost $6 million. Progress had been made, but at an overwhelming price, and the sobering truth was that the Central Pacific had barely penetrated the Sierra Nevada. Back east in February of 1866, Doc Durant put 37-year-old John Jack Stephen Caseman and his brother Dan in charge of laying track. General Jack was only 5 feet 4, but absolutely fearless. Brother Dan was 5 feet, that's all. But once, he lifted a 30-foot rail off the ground without any treble. It weighed about 600 pounds. Durant's hire of the two would reap endless dividends. There was still one more Durant wanted, and that was Dodge. Assured he would have absolute control, Dodge, on April the 27th, 1866, finally signed on when he wrote and received an absence of leave from Major General William Sherman. Quickly, Dodge put the Union Pacific on a military-like basis. He needed to because west of Columbus, Nebraska, the Sioux and Cheyenne were hostile and despised the iron rail which split their buffalo into two herds. The natives were one concern. Mother Nature was another. No matter, he and the Casement brothers drove ahead. By June 4, 1866, they reached the 100-mile post and by late July, passed Grand Island, which was 153 miles west of Omaha. The graders who drove westward eventually numbered more than 8,000, some 300 of whom were freedmen. There were also many Union veterans and some Confederate. Most were teenagers or in their early 20s. And as we've noted, after grading, track layers waited for wagons, each loaded with about 40 rails and an appropriate portion of spikes. 
Horses raced wagons to the end of track already laid, halted. Parties of five men stood on each side of the wagon. Two men seized the end of a rail with tongs and moved forward while the rest grabbed the sliding rail with tongs until it was clear of the car. They ran forward until the command, down. Every 30 seconds, that command was given to drop a rail on already placed ties. 2,250 of them a mile. Each rail aligned, the chief spiker was ready. The gauger stooped and measured. Thirty men on the inside and outside of the rail drove the spikes to a rail. Again, three sledgehammer blows per strike. Ten spikes to a rail. Four hundred rails to a mile. And between nine and ten thousand spikes per mile. All eighteen hundred miles to the west. Back east, the construction fascinated the American public, and every major newspaper covered the ups and downs of the progress of both the Central Pacific and Union Pacific. And as of October the 6th, 1866, they reported that Union Pacific Track reached the 100th meridian, 247 miles west of Omaha. Meanwhile, Durant sent out surveyors to find the best and most economical route over the Black Hills through Wyoming to Salt Lake and beyond. No question, money was a concern to Union Pacific directors back at 20 Nassau Street in New York City. To bolster confidence, Durant reported that between April the 1st and December the 1st, 1866, some 254 miles of track had been laid. But to be honest, the road needed lots of work. New ties, stronger rails, gravel to ballast the rails, new bridges, and fewer curves. But most wanted to worry about that later. Just get the thing built. And the Union Pacific was doing just that. During the calendar year 1866, over 300 miles of track had been laid. The route to Salt Lake and beyond to California was figured out, and towns began to sprout up all along the existing line. Whatever concerns clouded the men of power in the Union Pacific, the company had laid more than seven times as much track in 1866 as they had in 1865. And then the Central Pacific upped the ante. In 1866, one of the big four of the Central Pacific, not Leland Stanford, Charles Crocker, or Mark Hopkins, but Collis P. Huntington, suggested a new wrinkle. He wanted, how American, a race. Which could build more track than originally allotted. And Congress, on June 19th, approved it. At stake, the company that won would get the largest shares of land and biggest share of bonds. It was on, despite the wettest winter in years, one that created mud and landslides. Repairs, the laying of new track, and competition pushed the Central Pacific to hire and put to work the largest number of employees in the United States, over 10,000 and 8,000 were Chinese. And every one of them was needed for the summit tunnel. Engineers finally decided to sink a shaft from the top, which would allow Chinese to work on four facings at once. 
shaft down was 8 by 12 feet wide and 73 feet deep. Chinese labor cut the shaft, cleared the debris, and lowered timber to shore it up. They reached the required distance down on December the 19th. Once inside, Cornish miners were brought in to increase the workload. But try as they might, they could never outdo the Chinese and quit over that very fact. It was about this time that due to the soaring cost of black powder, $2.50 per keg to $15, a new explosive was introduced, nitroglycerin. It was five times more powerful by bulk than black powder and 13 times more destructive. Its use doubled the speed of blasting and broke granite into smaller pieces, but it also took lives. We will never know how many. Dynamite was perfected in 1866, but it was never tested or used by the Central Pacific. The work on the summit tunnel required so much labor that parties skipped ahead to begin new grading and track laying while exhausting and dangerous work continued on summit tunnel number six. The incentive? Central Pacific officials wanted its track to push into Nevada and drive eastward before the Union Pacific could get to Salt Lake and head west. As some crews headed east, other parties worked their way back toward Donner Pass, and on November the 5th, 1866, track was laid to Emigrant Gap, which was 21 miles west of the summit and 5,000 feet above sea level. The Central Pacific was only some 2,000 feet below the summit. To keep crews supplied, three locomotives hauled cars with rails, ties, spikes, fish plates, and measuring rods, all unloaded onto wagons and carts. Two of the locomotives were lifted from the track and placed atop skid sleds on split logs which were greased on the bottom with fat to help them slide. At dawn, the procession up began. Carts first, horse-drawn wagons next. Then at the rear, hundreds of Chinese tugged at ropes alongside mule teams and horse teams to slide the locomotives up to and over the summit. Then came the snow. In the winter of 1866-67, there were 40 separate storms. To continue work, the Chinese built snow tunnels anywhere from 50 to 500 feet long. Windows were cut into sides. Chimneys were constructed, even air shafts. And to continue, an iron-plated snowplow was constructed. 10 feet wide, 11 feet high, and 30 feet long. Despite the weather, by the end of 1866, the Central Pacific had 92 miles of track. We're within 12 miles of the summit, 5,911 feet above sea level, and poised to enter Nevada. The bitterly cold winter of 1866-67 affected the Union Pacific, too. It was a winter so cold that back east, Chicago firemen had water freeze in their hoses. New York City's East River froze, as did the Missouri River at Omaha. 
and it stayed that way until March 25th. Then, April brought rains which damaged track and took out some 20 miles of it. May 15th brought more snow, and another concern. For on the 22nd, four men were killed by Native Americans. Incredibly, they still pushed on with a workforce that increased in number and was more complex than the Central Pacific. They needed to, for the summit in the Black Hills was 8,242 feet, 1,200 feet higher than the Central Pacific's highest. In April, despite the weather and Native Americans, the Casement Brothers shoved surveyors, cutters, lumberjacks, graders, gaugers, and rail layers west. And as they moved, so did a village, if you will, a hell on wheels. It was a collection of necessities and sin on the go. Gambling houses, brothels, taverns, music halls, makeshift hotels, and occasional restaurant. When the rail moved west, so did the village, hence the name. With the scent and drive of a competitive race, Granville Dodge wasted little time. He and his team looked for ground to lay out an advanced camp for the company to use as depot, repair shop, sidings, and a main shop. To do that, he laid out a town of 320 acres in Wyoming territory, and at 6,062 feet above sea level, he honored a native tribe in the area by calling it Cheyenne. Later, he laid out another railroad town, Laramie. His Union Pacific route ran toward Dale Creek, a small stream, but in a gorge 130 feet deep and 713 feet wide. A trestle bridge of 120 feet high and 1,400 feet long was required to span the chasm. Eventually, this became one of the many engineering marvels. Always exploring the best and most economical route, Dodge and his party on horseback covered 1,400 miles in two months. They laid preliminary lines to Salt Lake, and in doing so, completed the first map of the Great Basin and southern Wyoming. We might mention that to try to deal with a Native American issue, President Andrew Johnson appointed a peace commission that convened in 1867 at the North Platte, heading that commission with the Sioux and Cheyenne, was Department of the Missouri Commander William T. Sherman, who, addressing their constant attacks, wrote, The more we can kill this year, the less we'll have to be killed the next year. For the more I see of these Indians, the more convinced I am that they all have to be killed or be maintained as a species of paupers. At a September 1867 powwow, Sherman was blunt. This railroad will be built, and if you are damaged by it, we must pay you in full. And if your men will interfere with the great father who, out of love for you, withheld his soldiers, will let loose his young men, and you will be swept away. If that was blunt, what came next was blunter. We will build iron roads. And you cannot stop the locomotive any more than you can stop the sun or moon. And you must submit and do the best you can. One chief, Pawnee Killer, who had earlier stopped two locomotives, stomped out of the council in a rage. By the end of 1867, the Union Pacific had laid actual track as far west as Nebraska's western border. 
and for its completed and government-approved effort, earned $3,465,000 for the year, of which, after expenses and tax, turned out to be a $2,061,000 profit. Sadly, much of that went to greedy and corrupt men who made up the credit mobilier. While the Union Pacific progressed in miles, the Central Pacific progressed in yards, thanks to bad weather in the Sierra Nevada. As we mentioned, to get through the mountains, Chinese teams of three worked in eight-hour shifts around the clock. Teams of three at the tunnel facing, with four such teams working side by side. Drills were held above head, at waist, at toes, and via a stepladder to the top. Drill held two swung 14 to 18 pound sledgehammers. They usually drilled four inches of holes, one and three quarter inches in diameter, in eight hours. When the hole reached some two inches in diameter and one and a half foot deep, nitro or black powder was placed and a fuse lit. Retreat, detonation, clear the rubble, then repeat the process. With teams working all day in those three shifts, a day's progress was between 6 and 12 inches per day for 12 tunnels and many of them with curves. With tunnel shafts 16 feet at the bottom, 11 feet high, and a semicircle 16 feet in diameter, working from middle out or from one mountainside to another. And when they met, never more than a couple inches offline. All done in the horrendous winter of 1866-67, 44 storms. Supplies hauled up from Dutch Flat and Donner Lake Wagon Road, which was five to 600 feet below the grade and summit tunnel. And as noted, the Chinese laborers lived in snow sheds designed by one Louis Clement, chief assistant engineer and superintendent of track. Some 50 miles were covered by these structures. One stretched 28 miles without a break, and, if you will, American Great Wall. Back at company offices and at on-site locations, all were conscious that this was a race and one that the Union Pacific was winning at that time. The Central Pacific was 370 miles behind its rival. So fierce the competition, both companies placed moles or spies in each other's camps. And it didn't help the Central Pacific when in late May of 1867, the Chinese went on strike. Though they made $35 a month, they wanted 40 in an eight-hour workday. Trying a labor end run, the Central Pacific tried to hire Frenchmen, but that failed. Eventually, Charles Crocker, one of the big four, met with them and said, Not a cent more will I give. Resigned to their wage, Crocker's Chinese laborers, numbering some 8,000 at the summit tunnel and another 3,000 east of the summit, went back to work. Finally, in August of 1867, a telegram reached Central Pacific exec Collis P. Huntington. Summit tunnel broke through at 4 p.m. 
toot your horn. The highest point on the Central Pacific's line was reached at 7,042 feet above sea level. Working from middle out and on each end, their facings were off a mere two inches. Completed with black powder, nitroglycerin, and incredible muscle. No electric or steam-driven drill, no steam engines to scoop debris, no gasoline or electric-powered carts or cars to haul out broken granite. The Sierra Nevada had been pierced. On November the 30th, 1867, the grading through the summit tunnel was finished. Track laid and spikes pounded in. All the more amazing when one considers all the construction material came either around South America or through Central America. Once landed, those supplies made their way from San Francisco to Sacramento, then up the heights. In a moment, to marvel at the Chinese laborers who lived in snow sheds, hand-drilled long tunnels, shoveled away snow, set up sawmills, hauled locomotive cars and 20 tons of iron up the mountain by ox teams. In short, jaw-dropping incredible. Meanwhile, the Union Pacific's chief engineer, Granville Dodge, had his line prepped for 1868. He had surveyed across Wyoming, Utah, Nevada, and in fact, all the way to the California border. And the surveying, grading, and track laying paid off. For the next 150 miles from Cheyenne, as stipulated by the Railroad Acts, the Union Pacific stood to receive 48000 in government bonds for every mile of track laid and accepted. After that span, 32000 per mile both much more than the original 16,000 per mile over flat terrain from Omaha to Cheyenne. By April the 7th, the Union Pacific reached Sherman Summit, which was at 8,242 feet above sea level, the highest point for any rail line on the planet. Graders, meanwhile, pushed ahead down the west slope toward Dale Creek, which was just a few miles beyond Sherman Summit and 35 miles west of Cheyenne. This, again, a trestle bridge that spanned the Dale Creek Gorge. Like the Central Pacific, all the more amazing how the material arrived. The wood for the trestle bridge was cut in Michigan, shipped to Chicago, where it was fashioned to specification into double-frame trestles with bents spaced 40 feet apart. Then it was transported over Union Pacific Rail laid from Omaha. At this juncture, the Union Pacific was, as one engineer put it, sailing. It was normal to lay three miles of track in a single day. And from July the 21st to October the 20th, 1868, 78 working days, the Union Pacific crews laid 181 miles of track, an average of 2.3 a day. On October the 26th, they recorded their best day, eight miles, for which that crew received triple pay. And all along the line, again, as stipulated by the Railroad Acts, telegraph lines followed. But with success, there were egos to feed, and Doc Durant's was quite hungry. He wanted to be the man who built the Union Pacific Railroad, but one other stood in his way, 
Granville Dodge. Durant went so far as to use a campaign trip for Republican presidential nominee U.S. Grant to stake his claim. On July the 26th, after Dodge took Grant, Sherman, and Sheridan on a ride to the end of the track, all, including Durant, met back at Fort Sanders in Wyoming. It was there on a boiling hot day. Durant, and in Dodge's presence, accused his engineer of selecting extravagant routes, wasting time and money on useless surveys, and refusing to reroute the line through Salt Lake City. Grant turned to Dodge and said, What will you do about it? Dodge answered that if Durant, anyone with the Union Pacific, or any government official changes my lines, I'll quit the road. There was a tense hush. Then Grant spoke up. The government expects this railroad to be finished. Then he looked at Dodge and said, The government expects you to remain with the road as its chief engineer until it is completed. Durant, meanwhile, pulled at his goatee and for the time retreated. By early November 1868, the Union Pacific was 890 miles west of Omaha and close to entering the land and influence of Brigham Young. Since 1846 and the assassination of Joseph Smith, Brigham Young had been the acknowledged leader of the Mormons. Tall, heavyset, Young stood six foot two inches, weighed over 200 pounds. With an inkling and desire for the Union Pacific to run through Salt Lake City, he willingly sent survey parties to Weber Canyon and Echo Creek, both in Utah, to survey for Durant and the Union Pacific. And then on May 6, 1868, Durant asked Young for workers. Within an hour of the telegram, Young agreed. And then the haggling over a contract and pay began. The Mormons would be graders and receive 30 cents a cubic yard for excavations when the earth was hauled less than 200 feet away, 50 cents for longer hauls. Tunneling, and they would have to work on four, was $15 a yard. Young also wanted $2 and up per day per worker, depending on their skill. Not long after that, Durant informed Young that his workers would be used north of the Great Salt Lake and not south near Ogden. Disappointed that Salt Lake City would not be on the Union Pacific's route, Durant did allow Young a spur line, but they would have to build it themselves. With crops ruined by grasshoppers, Durant got as many Mormon men and boys as he wanted, and they worked hard. In fact, busy as bees, which is why Utah today is still known as the beehive state. They were teetotalers, did not tolerate gambling, were quiet and law-abiding, and dotted their day with prayer and communal song. And the ultimate, they worked as hard and as diligently as the Chinese. Despite the fact that, like most on the Union Pacific, Durant had trouble paying his men with any degree of regularity, They continued to cut timber for bridges and ties, made grades, built bridges, and dug tunnels. Four in Weber Canyon alone. 
There is no question that Brigham Young's Mormons made the grade. By 1868, the Central Pacific had been under construction for five years, but had only 131 miles of track in place, and it was not continuous. There was a seven-mile gap on the eastern slope of the Sierra Nevada. And as we mentioned, the winter of 1866-67 did not help, nor did the winter of 1867-68. In fact, in April of 1868, snow covered the surveyed line of unfinished track under several feet of the snow, ice. The cuts between Tunnel 8 and 10 were both buried under snow drifts anywhere from 20 to 60 feet high. And that was in April. Yet by May 1st, incredibly, the line from Reno back west to Truckee was finally completed, and that allowed the laying of track at the seven-mile gap, which then allowed the line to be continuously open all the way to Nevada. In June of 1868, the Central Pacific ran its first passenger train from Sacramento to Reno, a distance of 154 miles. The locomotive was named appropriately, given the climbs and descents, the Antelope. Hank Small was the engineer. He remembered the journey. From Roseville, California, he and they moved toward the Sierra Nevada. At 9.50 a.m., the train had climbed 2,448 feet and made Colfax. Then came the jaw-dropping curves and height of Cape Horn. Next came the secret town trestle at an elevation of nearly 3,000 feet. Then came Dutch Flat and two miles up the road, Alta, at an elevation of 3,625 feet. In the Sierra Nevada, the first tunnel, 500 feet long, was 75 miles from Sacramento and 4,500 feet above sea level. At mile 102, the train was at 6,800 feet, and then came the 1,659-foot-long Summit Tunnel, which was 7,042 feet above sea level. At its west entrance, a two-hour delay while Chinese coolly shoveled away snow and cleared granite boulders that descended with the fallen precipitation. Track cleared through the tunnel and down the eastern slope. Engineer Small, the Antelope, and the train descended into Nevada's Great Basin. After track was laid to Truckee, Reno, and Wadsworth, the route turned northeast. The desert there was some 100 miles in length, and water was a real concern. Wells were dug, and the Chinese reassured, for they feared Indian attack. By the end of October, the Central Pacific made Winnemucca. At year's end, 1868, the Central Pacific had built 362 miles of road, and by that time, both lines were about to enter Utah. Both had much at stake in what would, in January of 1896, become the Beehive State. Government bonds, land grants, sale of their own stock and bonds, and future trade. But there was something more. Company directors, superintendents, surveyors, engineers, foremen, graders, rail layers, ballast men, cooks, telegraph builders, and operators, and anyone connected with either railroad wanted to win the race. And that would be played out in Utah. 
Yet, despite the competition, there were lingering issues that plagued both companies. One big one was money. Durant's Union Pacific and the Big Four Central Pacific were way behind paying laborers, but somehow, through their bogus setups like the Union Pacific's Credit Mobilier and Central Pacific's Contract and Finance Company, both managed to pay huge dividends to their stockholders. For the 91 who held stock in the Union Pacific, they divided nearly 300% cash dividends at the end of 1868, but owed $10 million, and workers who actually did the work did not see paychecks for long stretches of time. Incredibly, they still embraced the thrill of the race. The Union Pacific laid four and a half miles of track in a day. Then the Central Pacific laid six, and then that was topped by eight. It went back and forth with crews working at night and on Sundays, but the weather would have something to say. In early 1869, both lines were beset by frigid weather that sometimes froze the ground to a depth of two feet. Graders used black powder to create ice chunks, which would then be broken up. In February, a storm stopped nine locomotives in the Sierra Nevada. That same storm moved east and closed 90 miles of track for three weeks. And despite the horrific weather, construction was such that by this time, graders from both companies often worked in sight of one another, and that added to the competition. The predominantly Irish crews intimidated the Chinese, and surprisingly, the coolies gave back as good as they got. A milestone of note. Back on January the 9th, the Union Pacific laid track at a point where, beside the newly placed track, there stood a tall, ancient pine. There, in Weber Canyon, that tree marked the 1,000th mile west from Omaha. By February the 16th, the Central Pacific was 20 miles east of what was called Humboldt Wells, and the Union Pacific 20 miles east of Ogden. The issue for both? Getting supplies to the end of the track where crews waited to continue. By April, some sanity prevailed. When the Central Pacific's Collis Huntington and Granville Dodge of the Union Pacific met in Washington, of course, there was some haggling, but the Central Pacific offered to buy Union Pacific track between Promontory Summit and Ogden for its own use. Huntington offered $4 million and a threat. If Dodge refused, the Central Pacific would build its own track into Ogden. Dodge argued, but eventually gave in. The two then decided where the two roads would meet. That very evening, Congress, which created the race by legislation, voted to end the competition. The impetus for so much grading, detonating, drilling, and laying of track was over, and nobody could really say who won. But one thing was set. Ogden, Utah, would be the eastern terminus for the Central Pacific and the western end of the line for the Union Pacific. But the meeting point for the two lines would be the basin at a place called Promontory Summit. 
If you will recall, each line tried to outdo the other for most miles of track laid in a day. Well, after the Union Pacific trumpeted their laying of four and a half miles in one 24-hour period, the Central Pacific's Charles Crocker decided to up the ante. He bet Doc Durant that his crews could lay 10 miles of track in a single day. The bet was for $10,000. Accepted, Crocker turned to the man who organized his work crews, James Harvey Strobridge, and essentially said, do it. On April the 28th, Durant, Dodge, and others arrived to, in their minds, rub it in when the Central Pacific crews couldn't back up Crocker's bet. In short, what happened that day will be remembered as long as this country lives. The sun rose at 7.15 a.m., Corinne Camp time, and white men, Irishmen, former slaves, immigrants from all over Europe, Mexicans, others with Native American blood in them, and more than 3,000 Chinamen went to work. The coolies, accompanied by pioneers and track gaugers, began grading. Ties were placed. Eight Irish track layers followed. Four at a time picked up and carried a 560-pound rail forward until they heard the command, down. Dropped in position, spikes were placed, pounded in, then bolt threaders, straighteners, and tampers followed. Keeping pace, telegraph construction crews dug holes, placed poles, strung, and insulated the wire. One thousand men were in motion, advancing about a mile an hour. Train cars and wagons followed, filled with more ties, rails, spikes, and the like. When the whistle blew for the noon meal at 1.30, the Central Pacific workforce had bested the Union Pacific's best six miles of track. The men wanted more. After a leisurely hour of dining and the better part of another hour as rails were being bent for the 20 curves to ascend a summit, the crews went at it again. By 7 p.m., they had laid 10 miles and 56 feet of rail in one day. Never before done and never matched. Each Irish track layer had lifted 125 tons of iron plus the weight of his tongs. 11.2 short tons per man per hour. They laid track at almost a mile an hour and advanced approximately 240 feet every 75 seconds. The eight men had laid 3,520 rails. The Central Pacific paid them four days' wages. Others placed or straightened 25,800 railroad ties. Spikers drove into those ties 28,160 spikes, all put in place by Chinese laborers. Spikes weighed a total of 55,000 pounds, and bolt crews placed 14,080 bolts. Net rise in elevation for the day from 4,400 to 4,809 feet. And if anyone wondered about the workmanship, a locomotive ran the newly placed track at a clip of 40 miles an hour. They had done what no one had done before, and with all the modern machinery of today, none since. And the kicker? 
Durant never paid Crocker the $10,000 he lost in the bet. On April the 30th, 1869, the Central Pacific finished when it hit Promontory Summit, more than 500 miles east of the first summit above Donner Lake in California. They had done it in less than a year and a half. Equally astounding, from April the 1st, 1866 to May of 1869, the Union Pacific had laid a total of 756 miles. When one considers the challenges of terrain, weather, tunneling, and hostile Native Americans, absolutely incredible. The ceremony to celebrate the joining of the two rail lines and thus completion of the Transcontinental Railroad was held at a place where no one had ever lived, and after the ceremony, no one would. Promontory Point, Utah. After a two-day delay, the final rail and spike was scheduled for noon, Monday, May the 10th, 1869. It was a picture-perfect day, and although some expected 30,000, there were only five to 600. The Central Pacific was represented by Leland Stanford, who threw the first shovel full of earth back in early 1863, construction head James Harvey Strobridge, and many minor officials. The Union Pacific was represented by, of course, Doc Durant, Granville Dodge, the Casement Brothers, and others. No Brigham Young, no President U.S. Grant. And considering the completion of a dream that preceded the Mexican War, there was a noted lack of politicians in attendance. However, reporters were certainly there, who represented papers spanning the country from San Francisco to New York City. Three photographers were there, Alfred A. Hart, Andrew Russell, and C.R. Savage. Given complete access, they captured those gathered and the event. And, as one might expect, with all the egos present, an hour before the ceremony, Durant, Dodge, and Stanford argued who would place the final spike, a gold one, which was a gift to Stanford from a friend, David Hughes of San Francisco. It was pure gold, six inches long, weighed 18 ounces, and was worth $350. After going round and round, it was finally agreed Stanford would be the one to place it. With the Central Pacific's engine Jupiter and number 119 from the Union Pacific facing one another, separated only a few rail lengths, Strobridge and Central Pacific Construction Superintendent Samuel B. Reed brought forth the final tie one made of laurel, and placed it. Then a squad of Chinese wearing clean blue frocks laid one rail, while a squad of Irishmen from the Union Pacific placed the other. As they did, engineers Booth and Bradford pulled on the Jupiter and number 119's whistles, and to the heavens up went a shriek. Cheers rent the air, and as one Civil War veteran put it, we all yelled like the bust. The crowd now pressed forward for the final touches. Already partially seated in a pre-drilled hole, Durant tapped in his spike. Then it was time for the final spike. The silver-headed hammer that Leland Stanford held 
had a telegraph wire attached to it, as did the spike. His strike would be telegraphed to an entire country that literally was on the edge of its collective seat. W.N. Schilling, Western Union telegrapher from the Ogden, Utah Territory Office, sent out a steady series of staccato-like messages to various offices who kept asking, what's happening? To the incessant queries Schilling telegraphed, to everybody, stop. Keep quiet, stop. When the last spike is driven at Promontory Point, we will say, done, stop. Don't break the circuit, but watch for the signals of the blows of the hammer. Then he sent, almost ready, stop. Hats off, prayer is being offered, stop. Soon thereafter, we have got done praying, stop. The spike is about to be presented, stop. At the site, Stanford gave a short speech that did not match the moment. Dodge spoke for the Union Pacific, and almost in the same breath during his speech mentioned Missouri Senator Thomas Hart Benton and Christopher Columbus. Then, down the wire, shilling again. All ready now. The spike will soon be driven. The signal will be three dots for the commencement of the blows. Stop. Stanford now prepared to finish the thing. He swung and missed. He hit only the rail, but it made no difference. Schilling closed the circuit, and the message raced down the wire. Done. The nation exploded. In Philadelphia, the Liberty Bell was rung. Cannon salutes were fired from coast to coast, from San Francisco to Washington. Everywhere, fire whistles, firecrackers, fireworks, parades, celebrations. The great dream became reality. Now the moment had to be preserved. The two engines were unhooked from their trains and moved ever so slowly toward one another until their pilots touched. It was through the eye of Andrew Russell that we have one of the most iconic moments in American history. Framed by the crowd and engines, the Union Pacific's Granville Dodge and Central Pacific Construction engineer Samuel Scary Montague clasped hands while men held their best poses or displayed bottles of champagne. The moment captured timeless. Afterward, during a celebratory lunch sponsored by Stanford, telegrams were tapped out to prominent VIPs, to President Grant, to Vice President Schuler Colfax, one to Secretary of War John Rawlins, another to Sherman. And yet, there was one who never received a telegram, one Anna Ferona Judah the widow of Theodore D. Judah, the man whose promotion and engineering skill prominently gave life to the incredible notion that a transcontinental railroad could be built in the first place. That day, she was in the town where her husband was laid to rest back in November of 1863, back in Greenfield, Massachusetts. Ironically, May 10th, the day of the celebration, was her wedding anniversary to Theodore. She later dismissed the oversight and wrote, It seemed as though the spirit of my brave husband descended upon me 
and together we were there unseen, unheard of men. From that moment, Monday, May 10th, 1869, with the driving of the gold spike and the joining of coasts by iron rail, a man or woman could leave New York City and, including stops, travel to San Francisco in seven days. The country would never be the same. Neither would be the world. For anyone over 40 years of age and alive in 1869, there was nothing to compare this engineering and construction marvel to. An individual whose birthday was in 1829 or before had been born into a world in which President Andrew Jackson traveled no faster than Julius Caesar. A world in which no thought or information could be transmitted any faster than during the life of Alexander the Great. All that was forever changed. Indeed, for the Transcontinental Railroad, its concept and execution, there was nothing like it in the world. It was March of 1865, and the Confederacy was dying. Grant and Meade had Lee and his army pinned at Petersburg, Virginia, and Sherman's columns punched their way into North Carolina. Not far from a little hamlet in the old North State, and aware that desperate times demanded desperate action, Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston threw his smaller army in front of one wing of the Union advance toward Goldsboro. It would prove to be a last gasp. Next time we gather, the story of North Carolina's largest land battle. Next time, the story of the Battle of Bentonville. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by Bob Grasser, Raleigh Civil War Roundtable's editor of the Knapsack Newsletter and the Roundtable's webmaster at raleighcwrt.org. That's raleighcwrt.org.